Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 412, is recorded live July 11th. 2019. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where my home is one person lighter. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing pretty good, and it sounds like your son is off and away. Yep, we just uh, took him off to college. I think his first actual day of class will be Monday, which that's pretty hardy that you uh, go to a university where they, they start you off in the middle of the summer. Uh, but he's going to Kettering University, which is in Flint, Michigan. And I know everybody right now is thinking, don't drink the water, but they've assured us the water happens to be fine. Most people don't realize it's because they have lead pipes from the water to their house as opposed yes. to water's bad. Yeah, and what was going on there in Flint was the pH of the water had changed because they had changed the source and they hadn't adjusted it. So anybody who had lead pipes uh, somewhere in the mix, which a lot of homes in Flint are that age, uh, it would the pH would start to eat what had encased the lead pipes, which made them uh, usable. Uh, so they started to get uh, lead. And and one thing you can do, even if you had the problem, is just run the water a little longer. Uh, and that's how they were getting by some of the testing requirements, too, from what I understand. is uh, they were The instructions for doing the test was to run the water. And if you weren't doing that, you were getting a, a dose of lead, which I, th- I think they've come around to remediate that for many in the local community, but I think they've also gone through a massive plan. They did it in Benton Harbor. Update the plants. Yeah, they did it in Benton Harbor, and they had to do it immediately, and then you flush for two minutes and do again so they could do a comparison. Yeah. Yeah, Don't know how it turned out, but that's what they had them doing. And that's that's something also, if you have uh, brass water faucets, I understand there's a, a certain amount of lead inherent in those, and they recommend that you run the water a little bit, especially if you're using hot water or drinking hot water, just because uh, you'll get a little bit extra lead amounts in the water. still amazes me how many people do not go down at least once a year and blow down their hot water heater. Yeah, yeah, that's something you, you should be doing. Uh, that will help reduce the sediments in your hot water heater. And we're talking well, me, about... I was going to say calcification of your, your your heating tubes as much as anything else. Well, my my problem is that out here I have such hard water. Uh, it, it's hard. It just... Uh, what it will do is it will build up around the elements and then they it kind of cracks and chips off and then falls to the bottom. So you end up getting yeah. the sediment. So if you uh, flush it enough... Uh, that should help. Uh, and then what I've done is I, I have a very aggressive uh, iron maintenance solution that I do. I, I run uh, some iron out through the water softener, and I 
use iron out salt in the water softener. And that seems to help. Probably somebody's going to email me, tell me how bad that is. But uh, my water seems to be much better since I started doing that. I haven't had a problem with that since I got off of well water when I moved over here. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly on well water. But it's well, always better to do that if you can disconnect the, the pump from the outside so you can still use it for your watering aspect. Yeah, you can use uh, the iron. That's what I do. I have uh, the front faucet of my house is uh, pre-softener water. And that just makes it a little bit less expensive. The, the only disadvantage of that is that your expansion tank uh, doesn't have soft water going into it. Yeah. Well, joining us, uh, let's see. No, I say joining us. I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. Uh, and if you if you ever want to listen live, we tend to record. We're running a little bit late tonight. I actually had the notes done on time. I just didn't have the uh, joke. It took me a while to find. Sometimes that's the toughest part. But you can join us in the chat room. We record on Discord, uh, and you get to listen to the live recording as it goes, as uh, Derek and Eric will testify our, our normal diehards. So this first article we have is a follow-up, and I haven't, I haven't read it. I guess, Mac, you've, you've gone through the article. But this one, if you remember, we talked about the uh, two divers who had perished. Uh, they're fairly experienced here in Lake Michigan. and. Uh, so they've released a report on the fatal Lake Michigan scuba diving. Oh, darn. I thought it, I didn't realize it was a video. It's only a video. Let me, oh, there's a transcript. I saw that earlier. It says uh, two scuba divers from Illinois who died on Lake Michigan last week. James Wynn and his wife, Susan, both died while diving on the shipwreck about 20 miles offshore. Her body surfaced. Investigators found his body a day later, 300 feet down. The medical examiner's report said both were experienced divers and qualified to use to bring the equipment. That equipment is being tested. It's still not clear what. And then that's all I've got. Was there any, was there anything else that you noticed in the video? Nope. Same thing. Basically, the, the words said it all. Along with that, that's when I realized that I scrolled down, found the uh, body cam photo of the U.S. Coast Guard capturing a submarine filled with drugs the video was pretty good and it's when i say submarine they're talking one with a snorkel so it's not totally submerged because if it were they would have never got this guy but the video is pretty interesting Mm -hmm. and i think when they did turn it over it had seventeen thousand pounds of cocaine estimated at three two hundred and thirty two million dollars But what I thought was interesting, it said, according to the Washington Post reporting, 80% of drugs that that enter the United States do so from the Pacific Corridor. Authorities are often able to stop about 11% of submersibles, which means 89% get through. Wow. So they've gotten pretty good at it then if they're getting that many through. I was looking at this one here, and if they had done nothing, I don't know how they spotted them. But if they hadn't have been moving, you wouldn't have probably seen this. You just thought it's a whale. Oh, really? So they're just slowly drifting. Yeah. Did you go down to the? I I, down? I can't watch any of that oh, stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah my my internet's just too. We would the it would kill the podcast. Yeah. 
they, they have one of the they're on the submarine they're on inflatable boats. The one guy in his outfit jumped on board the back of this, went up to the conning tower, the small one, beat on it. They opened it up and surrendered because all he had to do was toss a grenade down in their toe. You know, toss down mm-hmm. any kind of grenade, smoke, flashbang, shut the top. They're going to be in a world of hurt in that sub. Yeah, I've the, we we covered it a few years ago, some of those subs, and those were scary. Well, we, we covered a couple down there from um, Columbia that mm-hmm. were darn big. Yeah. But none of them that we looked at were totally submersible. They all had a snorkel device. Seemed like some of these guys would go over to some of these countries and uh, buy their old diesel boats. Well, I, I wonder if this next article we have could be related. Probably not, but a pair of shipwrecked World War II submarines have vanished from the sea near Malaysia, and they said the bodies inside are missing too, which would make sense. Two submarines wrecked off the coast of Malaysia during World War II have mysteriously disappeared. A pair of Dutch vessels have lain largely undisturbed for nearly 80 years, but vanished last week. All that now remains of the submarine, there are broken scraps and their outlines in the sand. The ships were part of the Dutch war effort and were sunk during the operation at South China, South China Sea. Both the KXVII and the O-16 submarine sailed right into the Japanese line of mines, killing all the crew members on board. The boats were left as ocean graves and contained the remains of 77 crewmen, which are now missing. Researchers have verified the submarines have vanished and suspect the remains were salvaged by looters. Jet Bessemaker, granddaughter of Anton Bessemaker, who commanded and died on the O-16 ship, aged 41, described the news as very sad. It's shocking to all the relatives at the same time does not surprise me at all. As a minister, I had to report to the chamber that all three warships had disappeared from Indonesian waters. There were indications at the time that the O-16 had been tampered with. She said she felt frustration that uh, where we had found the graves, often after great effort of those involved, and were unable to save the places as war graves. And then they go on and they provide some details. Keep going down, you'll see the pictures. Yep. Said old ships may sound worthless, but diluting the World War II vessels can be big business. Special report by The Guardian reported, uh, published in 2017, revealed that even poor quality steel can bring about 1 million pounds per ship. It's not to mention the other valuables of metal available from the wrecks, including copper cables, phosphorus, bronze propellers. The seafloor around in Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore is littered with more than 100 shipwrecks from World War II. Makes a prime spot for salvagers hoping to make quick cash off the long-forgotten vessels. Salvagers aren't interested in the bodies on board, making looting operations more tragic. Reports suggest the remains of sailors who died aboard the British and Dutch warship in the Java Sea may have been dumped in anonymous mass graves. Salvagers reportedly uncovered skulls, jawbones, feet, ribs, hands, and hips among the looted material from the wrecked shipwrecks. So they don't give a lot of details, but it almost sounds like somebody had interviewed the uh, people who knew about what was going on. Wouldn't surprise me. Surprised? Uh, have you scrolled down to the bottom and look off to the side? Off to the side? Yeah. What the, do I see at the side? 500 uh, people descended on UK's biggest naturalist event. 
for no, fire washing like silent <laughs> disco and yoga. <laughs> it's got to be naked people. Yes. And I, they do, I went, I they went do down in the, pixelate in the a little bit, but that is about the minimum you can pixelate <laughs> there on the side. I, I went down further on the uh, yeah. item we're talking about. Yeah, this, this uh, there's is some a, other videos on that about the uh, showing the hands and bones of the of the people who were on the boat. Then they said uh, they revealed the spookiest shipwrecks visible on Google Maps. The wreck mm-hmm. of the, the last slave ship that ferried hundreds of captives from Africa to the U.S. illegal has been found. That's got to be the one we've been talking about. Yeah, we've been talking about it, uh, but sometimes. Some of these links are a little outdated. It's like once something gets out there in the internet, they just keep pretending that that's new and current. Because if you remember that first one, they decided wasn't it, but then they later did find yep. one that they verified it was. All right, and that was not much of a wreck left. But the yeah. other article down below it was referencing a 2017 wreck of a World War II submarine mm-hmm. containing 58 sailors was discovered. 77 years after being sunk by the Luftwaffe. I don't remember us covering one that recent of a World War II sub. Do you remember us covering that? Uh... It was the uh, wreck of the World War II submarine HMS Norwell containing the remains of 58 sailors discovered 77 years ago sunk by the Luftwaffe. I don't. I don't recall it, that one. Yeah, and I've got a picture of it, and it's uh, yeah, so it's about 140 it's a, miles off uh, uh, the co- east coast of uh, the UK. Yeah, yep. During the Scotland, Battle of Britain, actually. Yeah. So, in 308 feet of water was spot, uh, spotted by 3D 3D radar scanning technology. Said so the Germans had cracked the Royal Navy secret codes and were aware of the Narwhal's potential route. Oh, did you take a look at the picture? Oh, yeah, I'm looking at the side scans and... The color scan? Everything. That is... Yeah, yeah you know what? That is real easy, don't you? Oh, the yeah, second even, one's even better. If you look down, it looks like they've scanned it with a bunch of different equipment. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, different pro- Yeah, different sections or maybe different frequencies. I always am amazed that if it stood on end, the tail would just be about on the surface. It's 290 feet long, and it's 300 feet deep. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Hey, go to Urkel. I can't believe we missed that one. Yeah. Wonder when it, let me see when that was published. Because the pictures are pretty darn good of the uh, surface, and these uh, color shots are wonderful. Yeah, that was from uh, November 3rd. 2017 so it's been a little over a year and a half i don't know how we missed that though we usually catch the submarines yeah we usually try to try to get them did, did we kick this on somehow so they can take a look at the pictures uh yeah we can that one that one you're gonna it's gonna be a little bit hard you're gonna have to click on the show notes i just did i just put it on Oh, you did too, then. Yeah, just a little delay there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, now they got it. Yeah. That was and interesting. And here's one I don't think that we had a chance to cover. Uh, this one was the, let's see, this is out of the Fredericks 
Frederick News Post. Let's see, where's Frederick? Uh, sometimes it's the toughest thing to figure out where some of these places are. Is this the ammo one? Oh, this is Maryland. Uh, Frederick, Maryland. MD is Maryland, I believe. Yeah, this is the uh, uh, country to uh, country. Darn it. County to consider change that would allow scuba site near Woodsboro. The Frederick County Council is considering a change later this year that would help jumpstart a proposed scuba diving center and related activities near Woodsboro. Council Vice President Michael Blue has taken the lead on drafting a change in zoning law that benefit Brad Hill and Matt. Was that Scogebro? Both partners attempting to complete the project. He owns Comus Construction, a local mining operation, a reservoir where the scuba operation facilities would be located. And then uh, Gojbo owns Aquanautics, a scuba training shop near Baltimore, and recently established Jaterna Springs, a nonprofit that entity would operate the Ecology Learning Center, the dive operation, and other parts of the project. Blue said the main point of revising the, con- the county's mineral mining zoning code would be to allow scuba diving and other recreational uses. The amendment is being reviewed by the county planning staff. Everyone thinks it's a couple sentences. Well, no, it's a big deal since you're changing what Frederick County law states is allowable use and zoning, and they don't take that lightly, Blue said. According to county code, uses in a mineral mining district currently include mineral extraction processing, including grinding, polishing, washing, mixing, sorting, stockpiling, and manufacture of finished projects, which contain at least 40% of the material derived in the site. Blue said senior assistant county attorney Michael Chamel will be instrumental in helping draft the zoning change. County planning staff reviewing it and will give in the council schedule and summer recess. Any workshop on it will most likely occur in September. Chamel said Wednesday that the change to the county's mineral mining zoning code is brief but allows scuba diving instruction and recreation along with accessories use of facilities, which include the ecology center, clubhouse, and other components. The zoning text amendment does not address the scope and actual operation of scuba diving facility and merely permits it within the zone. Those regulations come from federal and state laws, he said. At a town meeting in Woodsboro on Tuesday night, roughly 20 residents of town boarding commissioners heard an update from Hill and Scogebro uh, about the proposed project. Town officials are curious to hear more because it might benefit them if the reservoir site is annexed into the town limits. Commissioner Gary Smith, however, is concerned as to whether the town could provide infrastructure needed for the project, as I see the potential as long as I can see the proposal and it doesn't harm the town in any way, Smith said in the meeting. Hill, however, had a direct message for residents aboard about the proposal. It's going to get built, I can tell you that. It's our intention to be net positive. Uh, Skojbo also, after the meeting, uh, at the project, if the zoning changes are made, they'll be completed in three phases. First, the scuba diving training operation will be completed, including bathhouse for visiting divers. The ecology center run by the, the Jaterna Springs would open. Lastly, the restaurant clubhouse would open north of the reservoir. All the estimate uh, costs estimated to be about $30 million. But they said their main focus is on getting the zoning changes approved. They, they said they also want to pursue the annexation in the Woodsboro, whether to increase the town's tack base or allow the possible water supply into the town. Uh, and then uh, there's people talking about the zoning changes have to happen first. 
according to state law, if Hill and Skojbo wanted to pursue expedited annexation, they'd have to wait five years before the changes, before changing the county zoning code. Regardless of the, the annex occurs, a project to have massive impact for scuba divers in the region. You're talking 20, 30 shops regionally now have a place that's 40 minutes to an hour away instead of three and a half hours. Could be such a large attraction. It's not the Grand Canyon, but it's one we got in our backyard filled with water. Do they say how big this is? No, they do not. I'm looking at the picture, mm -hmm. and that's uh, quite large. That's a fairly doesn't say one. how deep it is or anything like that either, though, nor the visibility. But thirty million is quite an investment, and if they're going to do swimming facilities first or diving, and then an ecology center run by another group, then obviously if you put a restaurant and other amenities there, that's going to be a heck of a draw because some people come out just to see what's going on, and I can't believe they wouldn't have swimming, you know, apart yeah. from the diving. So it sounds like what they're dealing with is just the current zoning, which is if you're going to do mineral extraction and the processing, that's all that's allowed in that zoning area. Yeah. Uh, situated about a mile southeast of downtown Woodsboro sits uh, Comas Construction, a property of more than 1,000 acres, our Brad Hill Mines. It's going to be interesting, huh? Yeah. We'll have to follow up on that because if they do – start a lot of operations there. It'll be interesting to see what kind of stuff they may sink there, just like mm -hmm. all the other ones have. Yeah. Uh, did you skip yeah. the ammo shipwreck, by the way? Uh, let me see. It might have... Uh, dun, dun, dun. Yeah, I might have had it in the wrong order. So this Correct. one is... Is this, this out of Canada? CBC? Canadian? Um World War II ammo shipwrecked off Bell Island to surface next week. And I think Bell Island is one where, uh, who's our uh, dive buddy who, who goes to Bell Island quite a bit? Uh, crap. Steve. Um, I don't know if you know who I'm talking about. Dives quite a bit with Jill Heinerth. Why am I, I'm, I'm doing a block on his name right now. Everybody's probably screaming at me who, what his name is. We've, we've interviewed him too. Ah, oh, I'm terrible with names. Darn it. Uh, it'll come back to me. But anyway, uh, Bell Isle. Let me get back to that article now. Uh, in, intact artillery shells that spent more than seven decades in the bottom of the Conception Bay will be brought up from the depths by military divers starting next week in an operation expected to last 10 days and end with the ordnance being blasted apart on dry land. The ordnance is aboard ore carriers that sank in 1942 off Bell Island, the torpedo targets of German U-boats during the Second World War. The ships have been underwater ever since, largely intact, save for anemones, crabs, and other sea creatures that have moved in. But according to frequent divers in the area, time and seawater have begun to take their toll in the wrecks. The steel in the ship is deteriorating over time. It's rusting, so they're starting to become exposed that weren't before, uh, said Neil Burgess, who's also president of Shipwreck Preservation Society of uh, NL. What's uh, NL stand for? Uh, those things include unexplored ordinances that Burgess has seen on dives, a few pieces scattered on ship decks, foot-long pieces of pipe 
stuffed with explosives. Nobody in the right mind goes and plays with them, but you don't want anybody getting hurt to, in their head to collect a souvenir because those things are still dangerous for sure, he said. British estimates are about 50 shells aboard each ship, most stored within cabins or steel lockers. The military has not specified a number, but it says we'll know once its divers have begun removal. As a press release, the, Nash, the Department of National Defense said the ordinances won't be detonated underwater so to preserve the wreck and local marine life. Checking out the wrecks is a huge draw for divers around the world, said Burgess, who puts in it is his top five shipwreck worldwide. He dives himself. They're extraordinary. They're so intact. They're huge. It takes a whole dive team to swim around the perimeter of the wreck. There's just so much to see. The sites include some summer ones, including three wrecked double as graves for sailors, and all 70 men were killed on the ships when they sank. There are things like shoes, personal effect. It's pretty sombering when you see it because you realize it's probably worn by a sailor when the ship was sunk. Burgess met with military personnel prior to the announcement of the removal project, providing divers with maps of the ship's interior and research he gleaned from Liberty and Archives Canada about the artillery on board. The information is crucial, he said, as navigating the underwater quarters and cabins requires skilled divers. It's very technical because of sediment in there and one wrong fin kick and you can't see anything. The dives can be done during daylight hours starting July 15th, and work is expected to last until July 24th. The RCMP will cordon off the zone around the divers for public safety to bring the ordinances to the surface beginning in the afternoon and lasting until early evening. The shells will then be detonated on dry land at the Cambrai Rifle Range in Mackinson's, with a nearby sediment. The Veterans Memorial Highway will be closed during the explosions. So what will be more explosion, the uh, the ammunition itself or what they're using to detonate it? <laughs> I would imagine what's using to detonate it. Yeah, because you're, you're, you're blowing it just so that it can't be blown, it can't dry out and detonate on its own. Yeah. Uh, how deep is this? I was curious. It really didn't say, did it? I think there's a website. God, why am I, let me, I'm, I'm, now I got to find. Yeah. I'm just looking at the third picture down. It's uh, a lot of debris all over that ship. So if you don't do a penetration, you still got to be careful you don't bump into something. I can see how you could uh, disturb the bottom and kick it up and make uh, the sediment airborne. Steve Lewis. That's what I was thinking of. I think that's the Belle Isle that he and uh, Jill dive a lot. In fact, we'll have an article with them coming up here pretty soon later. Yeah, they're both just uh, doing some uh, video and shots for National Geographic, huh. which they can't tell us about. They tease, if you follow either of them on Facebook, they, they kind of tease what they've been doing. But, you know, how, you know, those video production companies want everything to be a secret. Yeah, along that line. We may be able to talk about some additional items in our area soon. Oh, as far as, uh, I guess I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I know you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, okay, let's see what's the next, next article on the list. Uh, okay, we did the quarry. Microbes. See, microbes. Minuscule microbes wield enormous power over the Great Lakes 
but many species remain a mystery. Uh, Near the deepest spots in Lake Michigan, a crew aboard the research vessel Blue Heron lowers a device outfitted with a cluster of 8-liter bottles onto the dark blue waters until it disappears from sight. After a 10-minute descent, the metal-framed contraption known as a rosette finally lands in the muddy bottom 860 feet below the surface between Green Bay and Traverse City, Michigan, lies a place devoid of light, deep enough to completely submerge the 74-foot tower-placed skyscraper where temperatures still hover around 39 degrees. On the trawler's deck, marine techs reverse the winch and the rosettes lurch upward, deploying canisters to retrieve water samples from the abyss. While the lake samples appear crystal clear, the team of scientists from the University of Chicago know it's teeming with life. Each drop contains a plethora of species so small that dozens could fit in the speck the width of a strand of human hair. When most people look at the lake, they think of fish. This according to Maria Hernandez Lyman, a graduate student studying microbiology at University of C. I don't know. What is U of C? University of Chicago, maybe? Yeah, it's a Chicago Tribune reporting this, so maybe it's U of C. But there are orders of magnitude more bacteria. Despite their minuscule size, microorganisms, including the bacteria, virus, and algae, are among the most prolific environmental regulators in the planet. These tiny, single-celled species wield the ability to alter the Earth's climate, spread human disease, regulate metabolism in animals, and some serve as building blocks for aquatic food chain. And the Great Lakes provide drinking water for 48 million people, support $7 billion recreational fishing industry. Researchers know next to nothing about some of the abundant microbes. Great Lakes climate tend to be uh, making harmful algae blooms more likely and raise questions about how their microorganisms may behave. This research has taken on a sense of urgency. In 2012, Maureen Coleman, assistant professor of earth sciences at the U of C, started with a first-term study of microorganisms across the five Great Lakes to better understand what microbes are present in the region and what role they play in the environment. So far, after analyzing four years' worth of samples, the team has discovered about 160 new species. With funding the National Science Foundation, U of C scientists embark on a six-day sampling expedition from Milwaukee to Duluth, Minnesota. The research vessel steamed to lake trout spawning reefs colonized by invasive mussels along the Straits of Mackinac, or Mackinac up the misty St. Mary's River, through the Sulocks into the cold and foggy Lake Superior. We don't often appreciate the microbes around us, but the Great Lakes are full of them. Every drop of water you swallow when you're swimming in Lake Michigan has 1 million bacterial cells and 10 million viruses. That's for each drop. Our goal is to understand who's there and what they're doing and eventually to understand how they're changing over time. And they go on and they're going to talk about Lake Erie and the blooms and some of the other things that they're seeing. But uh, I thought that was interesting, just the the details that they're getting in. And that lot, lot of this hasn't really been studied yet. Well, the idea that uh, every drop of water I get in my eyeball has a million bacteria and 10 million viruses doesn't appeal to me a bit. No, but it's kind of one of those things. It's like, uh, it's always been there. You just didn't realize it. <laughs> so, and that that's why it's, you, you see these beaches being tested and closed and shut down. Uh, and that's why is that. Well, that's from that E. coli uh, yeah. in our own backyard. Had, uh, yeah. I think every beach from South Haven down closed mm-hmm. at least once, if not more, 
yeah. based on E. coli. And most of that was because sewage pipes had leaked, fed into the streams that feed right into Lake Michigan, which is coincidentally quite near some of the beaches. Just happens to be those rivers. Uh, and that's, this is what happens. Uh, we, ha- we have plenty of water relative to other parts of the world. And that's a convenient place to discharge sewage. And most of the modern cities in our area have put in waste treatment plants. But none of them can handle the volume of water that happens when you get rains, especially the rains we had this spring. So what happens is anything they can't process just goes out. And when you have when you don't separate your storm sewers from your septic systems, um, it just creates this problem. So this is going to continue until we decide to invest in waste treatment plants to stop this, which would also improve water clarity. I think that's also from Chicago's aspect. They built the the system to filter water over to Thornton Quarry, half of which has been blocked off, and now there's a couple of billion gallon reservoirs for runoff yep yeah it's uh this is gonna be a problem that's going to continue to get worse i mean we've we've tried to improve waste treatment plants the technology is helping but uh we tend not to invest at the level we need to that water's got to go somewhere yeah Like they said here, the other quote was, this year, historic rainfalls across the region have washed nutrients from sewage and farm fields to the waterways feeding Lake Erie and Gulf of Mexico. Exceptionally large algae blooms, low oxygen conditions, and dead zones are forecast. This followed up that I was reading a couple of weeks ago that the Mississippi, which is obviously what we're talking about, that all feeds through there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has killed a tremendous amount of uh, in, in the in the backwaters where you had brackish water, partially salt, partially fresh. It's been yeah. washed out with all the fresh water coming through it. So they've kill, killed clam beds, uh, a certain type of fish that's migrated out, and a lot of the crayfish. So it's it's done its damages here for sure. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully we we. Spend some effort and try and remediate some of these problems that we've got going on. But uh, we, we'd like to blame it on, they like to use the term historic. Well, everything not happening in the future is history. Uh, and I don't think we're having rains at any level that haven't been duplicated in the past. You said has not? They have not been duplicated in the past. We've. Yeah. I, I would take exception because they've only been recording water levels for a hundred years. Well, right, but I mean, and that's what I'm getting at is, but then they we tend to forget that we've had rain and flooding and other things that have gone on, and and largely we've been able to reduce the impact of it through damming these rivers up. We do. We have a large geo, not geothermal. I was going to say geothermal. <coughs> We have we have a lot of dams that are uh, generating electricity. Is that, that geothermal? Darn it! I'm glad I'm not. I don't have to live off my memory of everything. I think that's what I I regret missing the most. 
but we don't we don't have the uh, the flooding and the problems like we used to before those dams were put in place. Yeah, I did like the aspect where they're talking about as trillions of quagga mussels have spread across Lake Michigan and Huron. The invasive species has consumed much of the plankton, polluting the lake bottom with their waste, possibly providing these microbes greater source of energy. They're studying what influence, if any, quagga mussel excrement will have on the micro populations of the lake, including the abundance or behavior of nitrogen processing microbes. That's going to be interesting. Yeah. I was kind of puzzled why they thought that it took 500 plus feet of water to submerge a 70 foot high tower. Or was I just reading that wrong? Let me go up to the top here and see. 74 foot water tower place skyscraper. I don't think they meant, they meant floors. 74 floor high, the height of the water tower place. The 74 oh. floors. So oh, quite- okay. Oh, so they're just trying to give you an idea how tall, eight, yeah. how how deep 860 feet is. Okay. Yeah. And for those of you who are not in Chicago, the water tower place is kind of like a landmark, you know, mixed with a mall. <laughs> so if you like shopping, uh, it's it's a it's a place to go in Chicago. Beautiful area of the town. Uh, so they're saying that, that that structure could fit in there. I was thinking... That it was just I was mixing it. I was thinking that was what they're doing to do the samples because that does not even look seventy four foot. That <laughs> unless that guy is really tall. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And 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 uh, when we publish this, you'll be able to click on the links in the show notes and follow. So some nice photos in there. Good article of the Chicago Tribune. And let's see what's the next one I've got on the list. Are we- are we down to the seahorses? Yes. Did we make it that one? Okay. This one is a fun article to read that uh, we, we won't read the whole thing. This one is from the LA Times. Uh, a retired teacher uh, found some seahorses off Long Beach, and then he built a secret world for them. So this is an article about Rog Hansen. Uh, he's 68. Uh, scuba diver, obviously, since we're talking about him. And uh, he has been visiting the scoop, the uh, scuba horses, seahorses that he's found. Um, I, I like this one quote he has. He will tell you, uh, he will also tell you that getting to know these strange, almost mythical beings has profoundly affected his life. I swear has made me a better human being. On land, I'm very C minus. Underwater, I'm Mensa. <laughs> That's sometimes how I feel. Uh, beautiful being underwater. He's a retired school teacher, not a scientist, but experts say he probably has spent more time with specific Pacific seahorses, as known as, and I'm not even going to try that Latin name, as anyone on Earth. To my, my knowledge, he's the only person tracking engines directly which is part of the scientific name many people love seahorses but roger's absorption in them is definitely distinct there's a degree of warm obsession there perhaps over the three years hans has made the two-hour trek from his home in morono valley morno valley 
to the industrial shoreline along beach to visit his kids about every five days to avoid traffic. He often leaves at 2 a.m. and then sleeps in his car when he arrives. And there in the chat room, Max uh, posted the photo. Uh, he keeps three air tank. He t- keeps three tanks of air in his scuba gear in the trunk of a 2009 Kia Rio, a toothbrush, a pair of pink leotard print reading glasses rest on the dash. Do they show them? In, I'm not. I'm not quite sure what that is. Showing what? Well, the uh, a toothbrush, a pair of pink leotard print reading glasses. So is that reading glasses that have a, a pink leotard print? I'm not, that doesn't make sense to me, but I'm not fashion forward either. Hanson makes careful notes on all his dives, a colorful handmade logbook he stores in the three-ring binder. On this Wednesday, he dutifully records the water temperature, 62 degrees, the length of the dive, 58 minutes, the greatest depth, 15 feet, and visibility, 3 feet, as well as precise location of each seahorse. He also notes the phases of the moon, the tidal currents, and the strength of UV rays. The scientists will tell you that sunlight is the most important statistic to keep down, he says. He's given each of his four seahorses a unique logo that he draws with markers in his logbook. Uh, Bathsheba is a purple star outlined in red. Daphne is a brown striped yellow in a star circle. He learned that seahorses don't like it when he hovers nearby for too long. Now he limits his interactions with them to 15 to 30 seconds at a time. At first, I bugged them too much. I was paparazzi swimming around. Hansen tries, traces the origins of seahorses' story back nearly two decades to an early morning, December 30th, 2000. He was diving solo off Shaw's Coast in Laguna Beach when a slow-moving giant emerged from his from the abyss it was a gray whale whose 40-foot frame cast Hansen in a shadow. The whale could have killed him the flick of his tail, Hansen said, but he felt no fear. Two made eye contact, as Hansen tells it. He felt the whale's gaze peer directly into his soul. It was all over in 10 seconds, but Hansen was altered. He'd always wanted to live at the beach, but after this encounter, he vowed to make it happen. It took years, 15. In fact, he finally got a job as a special education teacher in Long Beach public school system. He bought a van and parked it in the Ocean Boulevard. He lived in the beach and dived every day for three and a half months before moving to Morono Valley. He amused himself when he lived at the beach. He built an underwater city he called Littleville and discarded toys he found at the bottom of the bay. Hansen saw his first seahorse in January 2016 while checking on Littleville. It was bright orange, just four and a half inches long, and Hansen, who had logged over a thousand dives in the area, knew it hadn't been there long. The range of Pacific seahorses generally thought to extend from Peru to as far north as San Diego. This seahorse ended about 100 miles north of that. Scientists said the seahorses and others that, that joined her probably ridden an unusual pulse of warm water up the coast along with other animals generally found in southern waters. They're getting a lot of weird sightings in the fall of 2015, said Sandy, vice president of husbandry at the Aquarium of the Pacific. There was a yellow-bellied sea snake bluefin tuna, marlin, whale sharks, and a lot of associated with warm water. Most of these animals eventually left and after ocean temperatures returned to normal, but Hanson seahorses stayed. They may be because Hanson built a home for them. 
It happened like this. In June 2016, he watched with horrors more than 100 high school football players splash in the shallow water right where his horses usually hung out. I thought, I got to do something. I got to do something, he says. Then he remembered that back in the Midwest where he grew up, they used to help city park services make fish cribs. In early spring, they would use brush and twigs and build what looked like miniature log cabins with no roof and ice-covered lake. When the ice melted, the cribs would fall to the bottom, creating habitat for fish and other animals. So I said to myself, build a city that's deeper where feet can't get to them, even in low tide. And he did. In July 2016, two pair of seahorses moved in the new habitat. Daphne, the runner, was named after the nymph of the Greek mythology who fly flees Apollo. Kenny's name came the proprietor of a local kayaking company. Bathsheba was inspired by a Bible story and her mate, Deep Blue, named after a dive shop that helped sponsor Hanson's work since he launched his seahorse study. He'd seen Kenny and Deep Blue's bellies swell with pregnancy and noted how their partners check in on them daily, frequently standing sentinel nearby. He's visited the fish at odd hours to see how their behavior changes from morning to night. He mourned when Kenny disappeared in January. He still doesn't come back. A new member, C.D. Street, arrived in June 29th. Feels like I'm reading a book, the book of their life. I can't put it down, he says. He also reached out to seahorse scientists around the globe to compare notes. I won't say I know the most about seahorses in the world, but I know the people who do. And then he goes on, um, talks about some of the details. But the fact that new seahorses are coming wouldn't that be an indication that some of their assumptions were wrong about this not being an area where seahorses would live? Or maybe they're breeding. He also must be uh, not married. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Or she's happy to get him out of the house. Go. Yeah. I, I was looking at the pictures all the way down at the bottom, and I'm trying to figure out, it looks like they're using the hose to wash them down, and I'm trying to, I'm wondering why that is so. Wash him down? Yeah. Is that just maybe the practice in the area? That's how they, well, it's because it's salt water. Maybe you rinse off the gear when it gets out and it just does a lot better. So it doesn't stick in your car. Don't know. I like like that. They've got the hose there if that's the case. Uh, But then looking, you see some of the, if you, did you notice that they have like a little loop showing the seahorses? Isn't that look like pine needles? around them. So that must be what he's talking about when he made the cribs. Mm -hmm. That seems to be very effective. Kind of a nice protective area where they can get in. And this is a long article goes on. There's a lot of great photos, certainly worth uh, an eyeball. Yeah. Yeah. Derek saying uh, salt water, you must wash your gear as soon as possible. So that's what that's for. Now, did I put this one in the show notes? The uh, World War One shipwreck grave declared National Marine Park? Yep, I got it in mine. Okay. I'm not and quite I, sure why it's a National Marine Park, though. Well, they've been working on this for a while, getting it to be... I think it's, it's a park of marine... I don't think it's so much like we look at them as dive sites or shipwreck parks. I think this is more just an, a river marine sanctuary. Well, it's an 18-mile area known for the ghost ships or the ghost fleet of over 100 shipwrecked military vessels from World War II. 
protected as the Mallows Bay Potomac River National Sanctuary. Yeah. And from what I, from what I understand is that these were during World War One. Uh, in 1916, the U.S. Emergency Fleet Corporation, created by Woodrow Wilson, built 100-plus wooden steamships, and I think the number was even more than that, uh, in a response to the German U-boat attack. So we knew that we needed to keep uh, our supplies moving. You have to, if you if you don't have a good merchant fleet uh, to move supplies, you know, your military lives on its belly. And if you can't feed them, you have problems. Yeah. So they they reacted, and so they ordered. I think they ordered up to four hundred of these wooden steamships, which which by World War One were kind of an outdated uh, technology, but it was what they could scale up. They were already using all you know iron and steel possible for uh, military vessels, so they needed these. So they ordered them, uh, but then the uh, they, many of them never got completed. So uh, these 100-plus that were completed were moved to, to the Potomac for salvage and are eventually scuttled by burning in 1925. And this is reported by National Geographic. Uh, and then there was, in the same area, there were also ships dating back to the Civil War. There's also considered Native American archaeological sites. So they got this area, this bay, with all these vessels. And I don't know if this article talks about, but there's another one that said they were still maintaining some of these vessels into the 1960s. <laughs> so I was, I don't know if it was these particular ones or other vessels in that area. Uh, see, there, I, I'm imagining it was one of those things like, you know, the, the, the $20,000 toilet seat. Once you pay for it, you don't want to throw away a $20,000 toilet seat. Yeah. Uh, it's frequently visitors to the Mallow Bays are allowed to kayak a motorboat to the shipwrecks and the wildlife sites include the bald eagles. And there's a bunch of sites you can search this on the internet and you can get down there real close. And it's just outlines and outlines and outlines of vessels, not pristine vessels. You're not going to learn a whole lot, uh, but it would be interesting. I mean, if you, especially if you're a kayaker, I bet this has got to be a, an enjoyable day to go and float through this. So that's just been a marine sanctuary. What do they do when everything's a sanctuary? Then they charge you to go see it. See it. <laughs> I don't know. Did you go down to the item that said related archaeologists found the last ship? Uh, no. This one? Yeah, where it says ship stayed back 1916, paragraph under it. Uh, 1960. Uh, ship stayed back to 1916. Paragraph under it. It's in red. Oh, our, oh archaeologists find the ship that transports yeah. slaves to America? We had talked yeah, we, about that one before, but if you click on it, it's pretty decent. At, uh, and another interesting write-up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this website, the Daily Caller. I think what they do is they take a lot of other content and then just kind of sweeten it up. Mm -hmm. But it's other than ridiculous amount of ads in the side, um, some nice photos. Yeah, talking about it being a tourist attraction. 
their declaration is a 180 degree turnaround from a year ago when records that excited many of the potential match for the uh, Clotilda was found to be a different ship. Reporter Ben Rains had felt like a laughing stock after writing about the misidentified ship, but he led the charge to bring researchers to search for the mobile river for the real Clotilda. Focus on the African town past comes from as many 2020. Oh, goodness. Yeah, here, let's just put political stuff in the middle of an article where it doesn't even belong. Have you noticed that now? I'm Is not going to comment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm baiting you. Come on. I just, I'm trying I, I, to I, stay out of this. It's stuff. on the silver, silver platter. Yeah, it's <laughs> like this. Uh, the news, you know, you you talk about butterflies floating the field and somehow you got to tie it to some political thing and how one party or the other is uh, complete idiots. Okay. That's it. This is where, this is when I just feel like the media lets me down. It's like, I just want the story. I don't want you to tie everything into some other agenda that you've got. Or just the facts, man. Just the facts. Yes. I'm, I'm smart enough to figure something else for myself. Yeah. Well, and then what, and then what you do is when you include something in that doesn't directly tie, you, you make me question the validity of the other, of the original article or premise that you reported on. What? False news? Oh no, tell me not. I'm not saying false (laughs) news. You can't, you can't say false news. You say false Uh, news and somebody's going to say something else. And I'm not a big fan of the, the term false news anyway. I just think it's. Sometimes it's a sloppy reporting. But, yeah, we're, we're going to try and stay out of that this week. Uh, let's Shark see. feeding, friending, and missing yes. sub, mapping sub. Yep. And, again, I didn't watch the video, but I've seen a bunch of stills on this. This is a deep sh- uh, A shark was swallowed whole by a large fish during a rarely seen deep, seating, deep sea feeding frenzy. Say that real quick. Uh, the deep sea video was filmed by Noah off the Okinos Explorer captured an ocean floor shark feeding frenzy off the coast of South Carolina. In the bizarre moment, a massive wreckfish. Wreckfish? Is that a fish that's on a wreck? Wreckfish? It must be. Uh, okay. That slinks in front of the camera with his bounty of still wiggling, fully intact shark peeking out of his mouth. It was dive 07 of the. Oceanic Expedition researchers aboard the ship captured the scene using a remotely operated vehicle, Discoverer and D2 for short. It was skimmed along the bottom of the ocean at depth of 450 meters, 1,476 feet, in the search for a small topographic rise that researchers thought was a shipwreck. Oh, that was that uh, one we covered last week where they ended up not being what they thought it was. Yep. They got some good videos of other things says a, a handful of sharks popping in and out of the frame as the ROV floats over a wide array of oceanic, oceanic rock, coral sponges, and invertebrates. Eventually, it comes a large group of sharks feeding on a two-and-a-half-meter-long, eight-foot dead swordfish lying in the seafloor, and all at least 11 individual sharks belonging to two deep-sea dogfish species of the family. Was it Squiddledee? <laughs> Which is certainly not pronounced correctly. We're seeing gorging themselves in the swordfish smorgasbord of skin and muscle tissue. Smaller, more numerous sharks at the genie's dogfish who only described last year the name of the shark, scientist Dr. Gene Clark. And they said that's not even the coolest part. The the star of the oceanographic show casually glides in 
about the 145 mark, a large bony wreckfish, also known as a sea bass or stone bass, is seen with a tail fin of a dogfish slowly wriggling back and forth. Wreckfish can be can reach a maximum weight of 100 kilograms, 220 pounds, and grow to 75 centimeters or two and a half feet in length with a long lifespan, some living up to 70 years. It's more evidence of really how the system works, and wow, I'm going to remember this one forever. The swordfish was uh, recently deceased, probably just a few hours, given the condition of the body and how quickly sharps were consuming it. The cause of death is unclear, but it's possible it could have died due to age, disease, or injury. No hook or fishing line was visible that would indicate a lost catch. However, the fish was injured. Quick work of the sharks would have made it undeterminable. And then I cut out the political part right there at the end again. <laughs> it's like every article. If if you have to, I would like to know, is that the author who does that? Or is that like some editor goes, oh, I've we got paid to talk about item X. Let's insert it in here. Well, I couldn't, I couldn't access that one because I've got ad blockers on. Uh-huh. And they wanted to, I had to either sign up to listen to their stuff or pay them a buck. So that's why I didn't have that particular one on my screen. Yeah. So, and then that was the video of the week, potentially cool scuba gear. In this one, I apologize for people who don't have Facebook, was a Facebook link to uh, Jill Heinerth. Uh, she says it was terrific work with the team from Stone Aerospace again. Watching this little robot make maps of the cave was awesome. The expedition was a resounding success. And uh, what they're talking about is they were using, uh, just diving with this underwater autonomous submarine. This is little. Uh, ROV that runs itself and it's as it's moving through the caves it's doing 3D maps of the caves so it would take a team of divers a long time to do manually they just observe this thing moving through the caves and it does a complete accurate map so I'm anticipating you were going to see a special coming up in the not too distant future that will show how this device worked i would be willing to bet that you are 100 percent correct and i would love to have one of these and just if it can do that in a cave imagine what it could do to a shipwreck oh yeah you have that fly back and forth a bunch stitch all the photos together you got a beautiful image so great work jill and team and look forward to seeing some more about it and i i saw i think steve may have been involved with this i don't know He's not in this particular post, but he was there, which we alluded to earlier in the show. So that does it for Scuba in the News. Did anybody get any dives in this last week? I'm sure some people did, but I did not myself. Uh, I know Bob's still on the ship up into Canada and having a heck of a good time. And if you've been tracking some of the photos, uh, some of his pictures are simply outstanding. I know he did a chopper ride up into some glaciers the other day. And it's like, I'd love to have been with him. This is a hell of a trip. <laughs> I know that uh, Kevin and them have been out diving. I thought one of the comments I saw from uh, them was, why isn't everybody out there diving? We have 75-foot visibility. So they're obviously up north a little bit. 
Was he was he serious when he said seventy five foot? I couldn't tell. Was it was it was is that when you say you've got seventy five foot when you got four inches? No, because And some of the pictures oh. have been pretty decent. So okay, uh, it's been nice. I know SAS has been out. Uh, I know SAS had to uh, change sites on one item because they were having a bass fishing fishing contest. And the visibility out there was three feet, so they changed lakes just a couple of hours before the scheduled day. Uh, participation for all of those have been pretty darn good. So I anybody think, got anything planned? I got something planned for this weekend. Yeah, and I, I, I think I, I do. I, am, I, am, I, am I diving the same thing you're diving? Or? Probably not. <laughs> yeah. Oh, goodness. I yeah, went that, through my old books. Oh, so that's some, the, that's John then, right? Yeah. Yeah, he, he texted me. So I oh. think I may be there with you. Oh. So Sunday? That, yes. That yeah. could prove interesting. Yeah. So so don't look us up. Don't don't stalk us with, you know, Google Maps or anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's uh, – they're looking forward to it, Uh and hopefully we'll have something to tell people about. Or if it's really good, we won't have something to tell you about. You have to wait till yeah. later on to find out about it. But yeah, yeah, I uh, got some old yeah, scans. If we, yeah, I got if we some nice targets. I got yeah. we need to validate what they are. Yeah, so it's a nice excuse for us to get in the water and do some diving. And uh, I'm I'm going to grab my tanks tomorrow, make sure they're all filled and ready to go. Yeah, I already. Re resecured my uh, pony rig, got mm-hmm. my my safety regulators, my cyclones and Poseidons out. Yep. So I got all my gear already squared away, ready for that. Yep. So that's uh, got my I'm, GoPro ready. Yep. So I, yeah, I got that one cleared. The my wife and daughter are going to be doing horse shows over the weekend, so perfect opportunity for me to dive. And I'm just going to take a break on the home remodeling. Forget about it. If it goes in the winter. I still want it done by Christmas, but it'll just have to go. And I, have I have I mentioned how much I hate drywall? <laughs> I think you may have alluded couple, to something of that. Nature. A couple to that. Oh gosh, and I I can't even go there. I just I just rant for an hour. Well, I understood that you were not going to quit your day job and go into doing that. No, that will not be my occupation. No, there's uh. There's probably a career for me in robbing banks long before I will be a drywall. Uh, oh, and then here's a squirrel moment that I think is 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 worthy of talking about on the program. And and I can't tell if this is Facebook bait or if it was real, but somebody had posted a question: Is yes. a sweet roll a donut? Absolutely not. It can't be a it can't be a donut. I mean, they're not they're not even in the same world or class. A donut is, for one thing, is does a donut have to have the ring in the middle? I would it think to, it did, and it would have yeah. to be fried. Yeah. Well, and that, that's it exactly. You're frying it. Or a sweet roll, and I have to say, I'm a I'm a champion sweet roll maker. In fact, I only make them one time of the year because I would weigh 9,000 pounds if I made them any other time than than Christmas time. But uh, I make a pretty mean sweet roll, and that is not the same as a donut. I'm not saying that they're both not good, 
Neither of them are good for you. They probably well, have. Well, wait a minute. What do you mean? Good. How I, can they be good for you? I know. If it tastes good, <laughs> it can't be good, right? No. No, I, I got to eat sticks and bark. I mean, that's about the only thing left of my diet anymore. Yeah, and drink prune juice. I, I like prune juice, though. I do, too. <laughs> <laughs> in, modera- well, in moderation. Yes. I think yes. you're going to drink in moderation. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've, I've always liked prune juice for some reason. Uh, but, uh, yeah, a donut. The, the, I mean, it's like different, you know, like, in, you know, the, you get the, the calories and the fat in the donut by deep frying it. Where in the sweet roll, we just add a ton of butter and accomplish the same thing. But that bakes. So there's the technical difference. So I, you're in agreement with me, as all intelligent people are, is that uh, sweet roll donut. Now, I would say there's a larger classification of pastry. Mm-hmm. I would both, I'd both put them in the pastry class. And they are a uh, nutrition weak, <laughs> empty calorie uh, not a staple of a diet type of program, but uh, as according to the people who commented my fake Facebook post, I have not seen, was there, have you seen anybody who claimed that it was a, uh, see, we even had a uh, cheese fry, even, uh, uh, wow, boy, this is, this is like the most popular post. Don't talk about something serious. No, 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 uh, no, it's a roll, so it says so in the name. Not even close. Nope. No, it isn't. Donuts must be deep fried. Yep, I agree. And then David Faulkner said no. So, uh, yep. So nobody in my social group uh, was convinced that a sweet roll was the same as a donut or a cinnamon. Because it ain't. It's not. It's not. So. And I think you should go to prison if you think otherwise. We'll just, uh, there's probably some, some sort of thing. I think we can all agree on that. Yeah, that's a safe, non political issue. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, do you have a safety story for the week? Oh, let me see here. Uh, talking. Well, it's not a, a safety thing per se. But it is. And it's nothing we haven't talked about. It's nothing that you don't already know. But we still screw it up. Uh, if you went through the Dan Annual Diving Report, you know it mm-hmm. is published annually by Divers Alert Network. And it is available to the public at no cost as a downloaded PDF. From that aspect, it says don't be a statistic. And it gives seven tips for avoiding accidents. Number one, we always preach. Dive within the limits of your training. Every year, divers who have never taken a wreck dive or wreck cave or cavern class die inside systems like that. Nearly as often, divers without proper training die in the overhead environment of wrecks too. So get proper training before attempting any dive above your skill level. Get the right gear, whether it's wearing the correct exposure protection for conditions or making sure you have the specialized equipment for a cave penetration, the right gear can make a world of difference. All life support equipment should be properly maintained, serviced regularly, and inspected before every dive. Take a refresher course. Even when you're diving within the limits of your training, take a refresher course to shake off the rest from a long layoff. A little time spent in the pool before you take that trip of a lifetime will pay big dividends. You'll dive safer, you'll have more fun because you're more confident. And from that aspect, it's like when we had these little um, introduction to scuba. 
It's never a time, you know, it's never a problem. Take that time in January, February, hop in the pool, get your gear, help get that rust off a little bit. Uh, the other item is get rescue certified. Take a slam course, diver rescue course. Every diver should know how to respond in an emergency. But the benefit, the great benefit, is I'll teach you to be responsible for your own safety and that of your buddy. Because if your buddy takes it, you're both better off. Practice safety skills. When's the last time you practice a critical diving skill? Like flooding and clearing your mask at depth. Recovering your regulator. Sharing air with your buddy. Bet it's been a while. Stay in shape for diving. See your doctor about any medical condition that may limit your ability to dive. Maintain that level of general fitness so you're prepared to respond to any condition. If you've just got over that chest cold, maybe it's not a real good idea to go diving. Stay within your personal safety envelope. Don't make any dive you're not comfortable with. There's nothing wrong with saying no, at least until you have the chance to get the appropriate training. And part of that is know when to say no. And it's sometimes quite hard. Peer pressure. Yeah. I certainly agree. I mean, that, that knowing when to say no, if you're not completely comfortable, don't do the dive. Did I lose you back? Nope, you didn't. I'm right here. Okay. Yeah. Very good points. Wow. I, I'm, I'm, I can't say how, I can't underestimate, underestimate. Oh, my goodness. English is a second language. Uh, I am. I don't ready. speak English. I speak American. No, I'm, 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 I'm kind of wore out listening to people talk and then hauling stuff up stairs. Uh, but I am certainly looking forward to getting a dive in this weekend. It's been way too long. Yeah, I was thinking wet, but I just put all my dry stuff together and I'm ready for that. Oh, you're gonna go. You you're gonna go wet or dry. Uh, I hit the water. It's going to be dry. Okay. One of the targets is 150 foot. I got my oh. bailout systems all ready, man. Let me tell you. Okay. Well, I I, I may be uh, a safety stop for you. I'm not being the early dive for the year for me. I'm not doing anything too deep. Everything else is much, much shallower. 70 and 50s. But, I mean, what can you beat? Getting in the water and then actually having something that you're either going to prove something's there or prove it's not there. Yeah. At least not in that spot. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'd like to thank everybody who's been listening to the program. We certainly appreciate you downloading and supporting the podcast. If you have the means and could do so, we certainly could use your help. We've increased the expense. We've uh, improved the hosting and um, we're slowly tweaking some of the audio. I think I've uh, I've got one item, and hopefully you can't figure out what it is, but it bothers me, so I'm I'm hunting down after it, and uh, we'd slowly be able to improve things. You would think that after doing this ten years, it would get easier, but there's always always something new we have to figure out. Uh, you can if you want to support us, www.scubaobsessed.com. Click on over the Patreon link, $3 or more, gets you early access to the show notes. Uh, if you can't do that, we understand. Uh, we would, you know, you can support us in other ways. Five-star reviews are always welcome. Also, maybe maybe you got a good scuba joke you want to share with us. 
or a bad one, actually, would be more appropriate. Uh, feedback can be sent to us at the show at Scoob Obsessed, or you click on over the contact us form and usually it gets to us. If you haven't heard back to us in a week or so, send it again. I'm just uh, probably got busy and overlooked it. Mac, you got anything you want to plug? Uh, no, I'm going to be in Goshen again this weekend. For the, I went there last week for the Freedom Fest, which was quite quite nice. Tried to get a ride in a Cobra, but the weather was such that couldn't get a Cobra ride. That would have been fun. Now, now what's a Cobra? A cobra is a helicopter, attack helicopter. Ah, okay. Oh, that would be a blast. Yeah. Yeah, a Actually, couple of weeks ago, I got the uh, slick. I got the ride in the slick at the uh, list. We forget. Uh huh. Medevac. So I got a ride in that. It was sort of funny, though, because we took off. We went over to Benton Harbor and we landed. And it just struck me as we landed. That was my 13th helicopter ride and the first time I've ever landed in. Oh. <laughs> You've never landed in a helicopter? No. Up until that time, I have never landed in any of the ones I have been in. I'd have always you? jumped out of them before I got there. Oh. But it was sort of funny because I'm videoing, and all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, we just landed. And that struck me. I'd never done that before. Yeah. Uh, I, was, I was up in Kalamazoo on Tuesday with my son. Uh, he was getting a. Uh, a tour of one of his uh, prospective uh, co-op employers and lunch we had was at the uh, Kalamazoo air zoo. Mm -hmm. And I still haven't had a chance to go through the exhibits, but we're sitting there next to, was it the SR uh, 71, 71 sitting there eating, you know, 15 feet away from it. Uh, And that is just amazing. But all those uh, planes in there, I mean, that's unbelievable, the collection they've got. So if you're into aviation and you're in the Kalamazoo area, you certainly want to hit that air zoo. It, it reminds me, I, I did the Mary and Jane air race uh, got a number of years ago with uh, Dave Guy and my jump buddy and fly buddy. And uh, two of the older gentlemen who also happened to come in first freaking place were talking. We listened to them a while, and they were both – X SR-71 pilots. Oh. And they had some interesting tales that ain't published. <laughs> oh, wow. I, I have, I, I've watched a few shows on that and did a little bit of research after seeing the one there at the air zoo. And, uh, yeah, that's, um, it's not, and I'm not, I don't think you can't be complacent in any risk activity you do, especially flying. But flying that was definitely a, a whole nother level, probably approaching what astronauts go through as far as there is no for certain that every trip is going to work out. Yeah. So those those are heroes in my book who can go and do that. And, and I don't say you actually tame the beast, but uh, at least you come back and can talk about it. Well, and come back and not talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, well, only to your to your trusted friends. Yeah, and half the things are declassified. Yeah. Well, are you are you ready for that time of the show? I'm sitting down. I'm ready. Okay. Well, I, I think I've got a two part here. We'll we'll do the first one just kind of as a warm up. 
At least I think so. Uh, little Johnny was late to class one morning. Teacher asked him, what have you been up to lately, Johnny? Well, I've been shoving fireworks up, fireworks up the arse of a frog, miss. Johnny, it's rectum. You're right at rectum. <laughs> uh. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that was the warm-up. So here we go. Uh, a young doctor moved to a small community to replace an older doctor who's retiring. The old doctor suggests the young one, the company I'm in a house call, so the community could be used to the new doctor. At the first house, the woman complained, I'm sick to my stomach. The old doctor said, well, you've probably been overdoing fresh fruit. Cut back on the amount you've been eating and see if that does a trick. As they left the young doctor, Mark, you didn't even examine the woman. How did you come to diagnosis so quickly? Ah, well, you notice I dropped my stethoscope on the floor, and then when I bent down to pick it up, I noticed half a dozen banana peels in the trash, and that's what made me think that was probably making her sick. The young doctor replied, well, that's pretty clever. If you don't mind, I think I'll try that one at the next house. Arriving at the next house, both physicians spent several minutes talking to a younger woman. She said she just didn't have any energy she, that she once did. I've been feeling terribly run down lately. Well, you've probably been doing too much scuba diving, the young doctor told her. Perhaps you should cut back a bit and see if that helps. As they left, the elder doctor said, you know that woman well. Your diagnosis is almost certainly correct. She was a very active diver. Then he asked, but how did you arrive at that? Well, I did what you did at the last house. I dropped my thesiscope and then went down to retrieve it. I noticed a local dive instructor under the bed. That's a good one, too. <laughs> See, it, it pays to know your community. <laughs> yep. You know where but, all the bones are hidden. Yes. <laughs> or the bodies. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, the big question is they do house calls. <laughs> <laughs> so until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. <laughs> <laughs>